now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. While the realm of digital evidence is still relatively new, it requires validation and testing like all forensic disciplines. Digital evidence is a dynamic discipline that can often provide greater insight into the investigation of a crime or the defense of the alleged perpetrator. In this season of Just Science, we will be covering the history and interpretation of digital evidence, emerging technologies used in investigation and as evidence, and the validation of digital forensic tools. In episode one, Just Science interviews Paul Reedy, owner of 4th Street Global, a digital evidence consulting firm, about the history and evolution of digital evidence. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty. Hello, and welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Planty, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Here to help us today with a discussion is guest Paul Reedy. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hi, Michael. Pleased to be here. Paul is currently owner of 4th Street Global, an organization that is a leader in consulting services and research with a heavy emphasis on data, digital evidence, including digital forensic and cybersecurity. Paul has a very distinguished career serving as a strategic leader and manager for the Australian Federal Police, developing innovative initiatives focusing on digital evidence. Uh, he has been a part of uh, many complex transnational criminal investigations focusing on organized crime, counterterrorism, human trafficking. Paul established and led the Washington, D.C. Department of Forensic Sciences uh, Digital Evidence. He holds multiple academic and organization and committee positions and has authored articles on digital evidence, including uh, a number of digital evidence books. Paul is here today on the topic of the history of digital evidence. So, Paul, let's begin first talking about your journey. Uh, Most people, you know, when they got into this, weren't getting into digital evidence back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. (laughs) It was a new field. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, and that's very much like me, like many who are now in digital evidence, particularly of my generation, and maybe even that generation that came behind me, we started somewhere else. In my own case, I was a science graduate in biochemistry and virology and looking at the new things that were happening in biology, really. And then I fell into forensic science, in particular drugs and toxicology, and had several, several interesting cases. For example, a few homicides where drugs were used as the murder weapon, such as heroin and that sort of thing, and looking at causes of death in people. But I had reached a point where, yeah, maybe it was time for a change. Then I went to work in science and technology and science and innovation policy for a while, the whole of government policy. The government that I was working with was particularly interested in the knowledge transfer from research, from pure research, out into generating technology business, science-based business. So I was I did that for a few years. And then an opportunity presented at the Australian Federal Police to set up the National Computer Forensic Team. Now this was back in 2002. 
So in the Australian um, federal police, what's analogous to that in the U.S., say, for example? So obviously it's the national policing body, but it has a remit similar to that of the FBI and the Secret Service and the DEA being the main ones, probably a couple of other agencies and functions from the equivalent United States agencies all rolled into that one organization. So it had quite a comprehensive remit for the work that it did. At the time I joined, it was only about two and a half thousand people. Interestingly, I arrived at Australian Federal Police and I couldn't figure out what computer forensics was at that stage. You know, I did a fair bit of reading and research, but I just couldn't get a handle on it. And it was pretty challenging. So I kind of fudged my way through the interview in the early stages. But by the time I went through the security clearance process, which took about six months, and then joined the organization, it was a very different organization to the one that I applied to join. And saying that, about three to four weeks before I arrived on the doorstep, the first bombs went off in Bali in 2002. And that was a year approximately after 9-11. In Bali, it had a huge impact on Australia. About 202 people died in those bombs and about 88 of them were Australian. So it really had quite an impact. And the Indonesian police had a very strong relationship with the Australian Federal Police at that stage and asked the Australian Federal Police to assist them in the investigation and understanding it. The advanced forensic capabilities and the like, Australian Federal Police, the Indonesian National Police did not have. So I arrived in November of 2002 and the place was just absolutely scrambling. And just to give people a little more context about the Bali bombings, this was a tourist area in Indonesia that was targeted. Absolutely. And it was known to be frequented by Australians. It was, as far as an overseas destination goes, it was pretty close to Australia. And you could have a a relaxing, fairly cheap holiday. There are lots of things there that Australians like to do when they're on holiday. The bombings were absolutely devastating. They They were set up with a delay between bombs so that people would evacuate one place, congregate out in the street um, and further down the road. And then another one was detonated, which was even larger, to cause maximum damage and maximum loss of life. And that was the organisation that I joined. It was kind of like catching a tiger by the tail. And certainly the remit that I had with computer forensics, that's what it was like. I had a quick meeting on that first day with my new boss. He gave me a list of five things that I had to achieve. And all of them were pretty new for digital forensics at that stage, or computer forensics, as we were calling it then, because we were only concerned about computers. That's all there was, really. That was the only technology around that held electronic evidence. Again, 2002, approximately, right? The um, smartphones hadn't been invented. There were rudimentary mobile phones, which you could use to call and text, and that was pretty much it. So in a quick meeting with my new boss, he gave me five things to achieve, to develop and write a quality system documentation so that we had a standard set of procedures to use, gain accreditation to ISO 17025. At that stage, nobody in the world was using ISO 17025 for digital evidence. It was, had only really just been established for the physical sciences in forensic science. Could you say more about what in general those uh, specifications are for ISO? Yeah, 7025, it's, if you like, a minimum standard by which the work can be expected to be done. There's still some conjecture as to whether or not it's the appropriate, but I'm a strong believer in it. It ensures that the methods that you're using are valid. It ensures that peer review 
that testimony when it's given in court is reviewed to ensure that our expert witnesses are speaking truthfully and not making outlandish claims or stretching. It ensures that our people are, are trained properly and they're subject to proficiency testing, at least on an annual basis, to make sure that they're competent in performing the things that they perform. So in a nutshell, there's, there's people who make absolute careers about this and it's well established within forensic science as to what IC17025 is, but it is a comprehensive management framework to ensure that a minimum standard of quality that is acceptable to courts. I had to create a budget because when I arrived, there are effectively only seven members for the whole of the organization. Distributed across the organization, they were each responsible and answered to their local command. And so there was no consistency in practice between one location and the next. And if you can imagine a bunch of very passionate people who believe in what they do, getting together and trying to reach some agreement as to the way things should be done, that was a challenge in itself. Sure, the prioritization. Yeah, and there's, there's lots of different ways. I mean, each had their own favorite tools that they like to use and the like. One of the other things, if we go back to the ISO 17025, I think it was my fourth day or fifth day on the job of joining the organization, I had to go to a national meeting. I didn't know about it beforehand. The decision was only made the day we became aware of it, which was the day before the meeting started. And it was the most senior people in digital forensics all around the country from each organization. And the discussion of accreditation came up, particularly mm -hmm. to ISO 17025. And almost to a person around the table, people said, no, it's evil. I'm not having somebody come in to look over my shoulder to watch me do my work. Who do these people think they are? All those arguments you hear about in terms of oversight. And it just so happened the way the table was arranged, I was the last person. And I just said, well, this is what we're doing. We are going down this pathway and for a very good reason. By that stage, I'd already been around enough to know that almost every person who was practicing had their own favorite tools that they would get for free, pretty much. I said, you all download tools from the internet, run it over the evidence and issue results of which is evidence against a person and that's heard in court. How many of you have actually tested those tools so you know that those tools actually do what they purport to do, no more and no less. And what errors are there? And basically what happened was that all the heads just dropped and people started looking at their hands. And I thought, okay, we've got, we've got a serious issue here. So that was the path we went down. So that's a very convincing argument for standardization and tool validation. Essentially the work that we do in digital evidence, that will determine whether a person's rights are taken away from them or not. That's right. Everyone has good intentions, right? But it's about, uh, you know, establishing, given the dynamic nature of the situation at that time, you know, how do you go about that whole process? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last thing that I was on my task list that my boss gave me at around the same time, Australian Federal Police, or actually all of the policing agencies in Australia had agreed to establish the Australian High Tech Crime Centre, which would be a couple of persons from each agency would be seconded into the, uh, the centre, which was hosted by the Australian Federal Police, to get some consistency and raise the standard of cyber investigations, right? very distinctly different to yeah. computer forensics, but cyber investigations across the country. 
So I had to establish a working relationship with the high tech crime center and computer forensics. So you have your charge there, right? Going ahead, you have these five things. And then at the same time, what's going on in Indonesia? Oh yeah. And it worked out pretty well actually, because what it did was it gave me the opportunity, apart from having to provide the level of response that I needed to do, it gave me the opportunity to really think clearly about what's going through without any preconceived ideas. One of the challenges within that scramble was while I was at that meeting, that same meeting in that first week, I received a phone call from somebody I didn't know, one of our senior investigators within Indonesia, and he said, we've captured one of the bombers. He's got a computer on him. We think it might've been used in the planning of attacks and we wanna know what else is on there. Can you send one of your guys up here to examine the computer? Well, there's only one answer to that. Uh, yep, and we'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's basically what happened. I turned to my federal police colleague who was with me and I said, how do you feel about going to Indonesia? And that was what it was like for the next three to four years. So you're sitting in, in this, you're developing it out. What were the next things that, you know, on your journey there? As I mentioned before, we started off with seven people. The um, computer forensics very quickly moved from being a niche capability, you know, something that was curious and interesting to some people, to being a core capability of the Australian Federal Police. Now, anybody coming into the field now would say, well, it's pretty obvious. But back then, it wasn't so obvious. And seven people was enough. They didn't have any budget. They were a bunch of guys who just kind of sat in the back room. Over the course of the next eight years, we grew that seven people to, to 60 people. We developed the quality framework because when we started out, there weren't actually any standards within Australia. There wasn't a, a framework for digital evidence. We had to figure out what it meant. So we had to write that first before we could write the accreditation. We built to the 60 people and the mix of people that came into it were changed. Prior to joining, they're all police officers. Everybody yeah. who joined the team was a police officer and they just were curious about computers. So they had a bit of a knack and understood yeah. it. We changed that mix and we took on a lot of people who were computer science graduates or IT graduates to bring into it to the point where we achieved approximately a 50 50 mix of people who started out life as IT professionals or computer science graduates and a mixture of police officers who upgraded their qualifications. And we found that, that mix of people gave us a really good balance in being able to understand computer forensics or digital forensics in an investigational sense, to be able to put that into context. What occurred was we were the first agency I believe we were the first agency in the world to gain accreditation to ISO 17025. It was a huge achievement. There's a lot, lot of resistance to ISO 17025 because it is difficult. It's establishing that minimum standard in a very multifaceted framework is difficult. It's no small undertaking. And I got to say, I've been an assessor in other fields who've gone through accreditation. I've been in organizations where it's been implemented from the ground up. You know, from nothing to accreditation, mm -hmm. or in this case of the Australian Federal Police, where there was already an established framework and then bolting on the digital evidence side as well. It was really hard. There is no yeah. doubt. And that's why a lot of people resist it. Now, I've got to say, through all that experience, I'd say 80 to 90% of organisations get it wrong. Oh, yeah? How? They're looking at, well, quite often they choose the wrong person to do it as their mm -hmm. quality manager. Quality manager's got to be a person who likes working with other people. 
because they have mm -hmm. no power of their own, but they've got to be able to persuade and influence other people that this is a good idea. Quite often they don't do that. Quite often organisations will choose a bombastic person to be their quality manager. What they end up establishing is a culture of compliance. It just becomes a box ticking exercise. The organisation just looks to reach that minimum standard. The whole philosophy about quality management is that an organisation should be looking at that as the minimum standard from which to improve and to launch. And if you establish a quality culture in your organisation, that's what will happen. So you're going to have the right person who can encourage that and persuade people and influence people that we want to get better and better and better. Yeah, and it's not just about meeting the basic minimum standard, but also encouraging innovation, especially in this field where digital evidence is changing day by day. That's really important. So quality can mean many different things. And to understand those criteria, um, really important. And to embed them into your staff is probably one of the most important criteria, I think. Yeah. One of the things that we did to, to do this within our team, we identified early on that it was important that people continually trained and that we did research because we knew technology was changing all the yeah. time. So we would ensure that we set aside 10% of every individual's time for training through the year, but also every individual had to have a research project on which they spent about 10% of their time. And basically all of the team leaders formed a board and they would oversee the research program. So although everybody had to submit a research project, it had to be approved by that board to make sure it aligned with what we're trying to do as an organization. Yeah, and we've talked before about criminals and criminal enterprises are early adopters, right? They're the first to, uh, to pivot and to use new technology whenever it, there's, it's advantageous. Yeah, when we started reading that cloud services were being talked about in terms of IT companies starting to offer cloud services, we thought, okay, this is, looks like it's going to be something significant we need to immediately throw some research to that. And mm -hmm. so we had people, and we also outsourced some of that research to some research groups to say, we need to know the forensic implications of cloud services. And doing those types of landscape scans of emerging technologies becomes really important. So turn back, your career is a, is a reflection of digital evidence, but let's take a step back and describe where are we today? What, what is digital evidence? All right, so... Digital evidence started off with, like I said, with computer forensics. That was the only technology that was available. So that's all that we looked at, basically just looking at hard drives. But now it's really a number of uh, closely related fields and it requires a different range of skills. So if I, if I pose that question in a different way or answer that in a different way, if I'm sitting in my Uber, which I ordered on my smartphone and I know that I'm going to arrive at the medical appointment, which I booked through an app, my doctor already has my vital signs and is aware of any issues that I might have via that app. If I was in some other countries, another app would notify me if I was in close proximity to anybody who'd been diagnosed with COVID-19 and I'd be able to take precautionary steps. Some countries have that available. But while I'm sitting in the back of the Uber, I'm chatting with an AI bot from my bank concerning a suspicious transaction on my account. And as the Uber travels to the doctor, my smartphone is continually interacting with the environment that I'm passing through. And more importantly, it's recording all of this data and sending some of it out to a cloud service. So it's a very different dynamic to where I started, which was a computer hard drive. After I finish that appointment, I'm gonna stop at my favorite cafe for an espresso, which I could have pre-ordered if I wanted to, and paid through the cafe's app using Bitcoin. 
The recorded receipt will include the amount, the tax, the tip paid, and the time and the location of the transaction. I'll spend the next hour or so working on my iPad that accesses all of my documents that are sitting in the cloud uh, and any other data that might be there that I need. And at the end of the day, I'll go home and check with my family and friends that we're all okay with some calls through apps because most of my family live overseas. In fact, outside of my immediate family, they all live overseas. So I'm not gonna pay international call rates on that. And through social media, and then I'll do some reading and then probably binge watch a series on one of several streaming services. This is a completely different environment to where we were two decades ago. Yeah, and along the way, you also tell people how you feel about the service, whether your Uber gets five stars, whether the coffee was hot and you liked it. And so there's even that psychological dimension that's captured, uh, the who, what, and where, but it's also an emotional response. Absolutely. And this is something that's really just emerging in the last year or two, that science behind the emotion. It's always been sitting there, but this is something that is starting to appear now. And different people interested in different things are measuring that level of emotion from the words that are used and what's expressed digitally. Content analysis of the qualitative nature of, the, of a simple Yelp rating and uh, comment section, they can dice out those different words and give that reviewer or whatever a classification uh, that's even more in-depth and telling, if you will. There's a full textual analysis that's going on. In the... the other thing is that probably along the way, I've been captured on CCTV at several points. For example, if I was in London, London's quite famous for the level of CCTV. It's estimated there are about half a million CCTV cameras dotted across London. For example, in King's Cross St. Pancras Station, there's over 400 cameras there alone. So there is no privacy anymore. Privacy's gone. And in terms of the cameras, a mix of both government and private and commercial. Yep. So where does that leave us today? In 2002, when I started, it was just a computer. Now, some of the sources of digital evidence are mobile devices. And mobile devices or phones outsell PCs and laptops, conventional computers, if you like, by about six to one now. Most computing is done on the handheld device now. There are computers, there are networks, there are clouds, which all are sources of digital evidence. There's the Internet of Things, which is growing, such as the smart home, medical devices, building control systems. That's generated by the Internet of Things or the Internet of Things devices. It's stored on the device, on the network, in the cloud, on the hub. So all of that data might concern a single event across all of those multiple locations. And there's autonomous vehicles like driverless cars, yeah. drones, and the like. That's all of uh, what's available out there now from which digital evidence can be sourced. But these devices and this data provides evidence of the entities involved in an event and perhaps co-conspirators, images, videos, communications, locations where events have occurred, the transactions between each, whether they be financial transactions or other things, the actions that took place, the timelines, but also going back to the point we were talking about earlier, some motivations and behaviours of the individuals involved, but also plans being created in the past, being executed in the present or for future. So all of this information is available digitally. And you like to say, this presents the data story, right? It's, it's your job as a forensic examiner to stitch together this evidence. Absolutely. And all this is data, all right? And this is not a new concept. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, 
in one of his stories, uh, which was The Adventures of the Copper Breaches. Sherlock Holmes cried, data, data, data. I cannot make bricks without clay. And this is the nub of what we're talking about now. It's all about the data and trying to figure it out. So how do we get here? So when we talk about the evolution of digital evidence, from what you said, we can almost chunk it out from the beginning with the 70s and 80s, almost decade by decade. Yep. Digital evidence didn't start out as forensic science at all. It started out as in, in investigations. One colleague in a major law enforcement agency I met years ago, asked him how he got into it. And he said, they asked me to look at the computer because I knew how to hook up and switch on the printer. That's how he started. And that's how a lot of people started. It started off as an investigational capability. It actually started as far back as the 1970s when the, it was noticed that electronic crimes were increasing and especially financial crimes. And consequently, fraud divisions were the ones who were the early interested parties in digital evidence or computer forensics as it was called then. It was mostly mainframes used by people with specialized skills back in the 70s. I vaguely remember those days. Perhaps one of the, the early crimes was what was called the one cent crime, where banks calculating interest would round up, okay? Now, rounding is a mathematical concept, which we all learnt. I don't know if they still teach it, but you go to the nearest whole cent and there were fractions left over, fractions of cent. And obviously you can't put that onto somebody's account. So what banks used to do was use the rounding error to round it up or round it down to a credit to someone's account. Over time, it all theoretically balanced out. But what some very smart people did was they actually reprogrammed some of these mainframes so those fractions were actually pushed off into another account. And it might be just amount to hundreds of dollars. But if it was a very large bank, or very large organization, those fractions could amount to hundreds of thousands of dollars, just in fractions of cents pushed off into another account. So that was one of the very first electronic crimes. And that started back in the 70s. In 1973, the federal rules of evidence were signed into law, which gave guidance into computer crime and, and the way the evidence could be used there. It was a key thing, although it doesn't feature directly and heavily in the field. It was taken a step further in the 80s though when personal computers emerged, making computer accessible. And when the first personal computers came about, the large established computing companies at the time said, well, there's no market for a personal computer. So they didn't back it. Obviously they were proven wrong. <laughs> I think the, the figure was that there's a worldwide market for 300 personal computers in the world. In my house, we probably have four or five. <laughs> I think it'd be the same for most people. Everybody has at least one. Formal computer, not talking about all of those ones that are built into our refrigerators and everywhere else. <laughs> so that's moving us from the 70s to the 80s. And you have this advent of personal computers followed by the rise of commercial forensic products. Yeah, because those are the early forensic products were developed by government agencies. They weren't available outside of government agencies. But then the commercial forensic products began to emerge, which really took a step forward because you get some consistency of practice because they had multiple clients or customers, they could invest in those tools to make them better, faster, more comprehensive. There was a level of scale that was necessary that they reached. You know, it's, it's the private sector that really has most of the funds to be able to invest in research if there's a market big enough. In the 80s and 90s, things developed further. US law enforcement 
began collaborating on the development of training and to build capacity to deal with the growing type of computer evidence. In 1984, the FBI established the Computer Analysis Response Team, which was able to regionally concentrate that level of skill because they, you know, the skills weren't widely available, but there was a much greater need. And when we consider the number of law enforcement agencies within the United States, they're not all going to have those skills and capability. So having a regional centre where state and smaller agencies could go to was very helpful to them. But that moved on to international collaboration between specialised groups, particularly between the United States and Europe, and also regional centres were established. But those regional centres became overloaded. And so it had to be able to push the technology and that capability out to the smaller agencies. And individual agencies then began to establish their own capability, which is very helpful. And we ended up with a, a tiered structure so that the basic stuff could be done locally. And if it was too hard, too difficult, it could be pushed up to the next level of expertise and pushed up again. And in, um, in the 1990s, CART, the Computer Analysis Response Team, teamed up with the Defence Computer Forensic Laboratory. And this defence were already investing pretty heavily in this capability. We were able to get some knowledge transfer between defence and law enforcement. And that was very helpful. It advanced the capability much further. So the 1990s can be characterised in many ways of the problem is a real one. It's growing, emerging, and law enforcement, we're starting to formalise specific units in response around this problem. Yep, definitely. But one of the problems in the, in the 90s were those tools, while they might have been effective, they didn't have a graphic user interface. They were difficult to use. So a lot of it was a command line interaction between them and the user. So it took specialist user. Then commercial tools that became available with the graphic user interface. So it made it more accessible to non-computer science graduates, if you like, made it available for them because they, it was much easier to follow. And those who have tried to use a graphic user interface as opposed to a command line interface well, know the difference. It's a heck of a lot easier with, with a GUI. Uh, and then some other tools then became available. And we get to the point where we are now, where the forensic tool market is now very competitive with many tools, including niche tools that might perform a single specific function, are produced in many countries. The United States is obviously where it started, but a couple of European tools are available, some Australian ones. There's, a, there's quite a number of different tools that are available around the world. And that's a very healthy competition because they all want to be better than the other. They're all looking for market share. You gain market share by being better. And in the backdrop in the 90s, we, you know, we probably should mention uh, for folks, as we talk about the history of digital evidence, 1995 was also the year of the O.J. Simpson case. And what's special there is probably the most important case to present the forensic field to the general community a national trial of that importance on television just brought forensic science to focus. And it's just really interesting to uh, understand the backdrop. That's actually where uh, I was getting my master's at the same time. And, uh, you know, the play-by-play -play on that was uh, really interesting. Even back in Australia, and this is when the world was less connected than what it was now, we could watch it minute by minute in Australia as to what was happening. So, yeah, so we, we're going through the 90s. And now we're, we're hitting in 2000. And this was really where you started turning towards standard, standard operating procedures, the ISOs, best practices. So this touches on where we started off with 
accreditation to ISO 17025. We established that in Australia. As I mentioned before, we had to write the guidelines first. So there was a group of people who were interested in the field came together to write the guidelines under the auspices of the accrediting authority to make sure that we're complying with the ISO, which is international standard. So it can all be linked back to a single standard that is agreed upon internationally. And that's what we're doing. The same types of advances were happening in different countries in the US, uh, ASCLAD Lab, American Society for Crime Laboratory Directors Lab Accreditation Board were also putting together a framework. And it was slightly different to ISO, but many of the same elements. And now in the last few years, ASCLAD Lab have moved to the ISO adoption. And so again, similar expectations, no matter where you are in the world, as to the standard of work that's going to be done. So the 2000 National Academies report, strengthening forensic science in the United States, what were the specialized or takeaways for digital evidence there, would you say? The report recognized that digital evidence was a new field and sort of cut some slack there, but said that there needs to be more research. It needs to have defined standards, defined procedures, which courts can reasonably expect will have been employed in the generation of work. Because at that stage, that wasn't the case. It was still the wild, wild west. When I talk about the discussions around the table, when I first started in the field in 2002, and saying, well, I'm not doing that. I'm doing what I think is right. That still persisted even towards the end of that decade when the NAS report was written. People were passionate about what they did. They believed they were doing the right thing, but they all wanted to do it their own way. Okay. And so... Now, as we move into 2000, we talk about the changes in technology. I mean, 2000 sounds like yesterday, right? We're in 2020 now. <laughs> so let's turn to like the current state of technology. Okay. So we have a range of different technologies that are available where evidence can be located. And we touched on that earlier. Even though we've got computers, which might sound, okay, that's one type of device, there's different operating systems. And what you can do on a, a Microsoft operating system and the way that manages the data and its file system is quite different to that of a Mac. So a tool that can be used on one will function differently on the other. But not only that, with each version and each update, there are changes that occur in the way that data is stored. And uh, the operating system is quite different. So current versions will store data, will file files differently to earlier versions and the artifacts that are present are quite different. And so a digital evidence examiner or a digital forensic examiner must be aware and must understand what artifacts are going to be different. If we look at mobile devices, the two major ones are the Apple with the iOS operating system and various flavors of Android, Samsung being the most popular of those, but the Android operating system is employed across a range of different branded mobile phones and they have nuances that are different and each version is different. Now these phones can have anywhere from a couple of million different apps on them. Obviously they're not gonna have all of those, but they'll have different apps. But those apps will update, you know, on average once a month each and they'll move differently. You know, the, the data will be different on each one. As digital forensics people, we're particularly interested in the communications apps. They're the most important ones for us because we want to understand the interactions between suspect and victim, between co-conspirators. We understand, want to understand what's going on. 
But now the data is not all stored on the phone or within the app. And a lot of that data that's very important might be stored on the server or it might not be stored anywhere. So we're looking at different artifacts and those apps will change over time. One version it might store on a server, another version it might not store at all, or it might store on the phone itself. If we're talking about something like Snapchat, which has a, a particular defined life of a message or, a, or an image and disappears, is that image retrievable or even partially retrievable? The answer to that question changes the forensic answer. It depends. And even the ability of technology to handle the data volume changes. And then what that does is it creates new opportunities for criminals. You know, just thinking about the transfer of images, which 10 years ago was very different in terms of your capabilities, our capabilities now. Yeah. When I first got involved, we talked about Bali and that investigation, but there was another one that occurred at around the same time. And these massive bushfires hit our area in, in Canberra and Australia. And it was, it was absolutely devastating. 500 homes were lost, four people lost their lives. The coroner's inquest into those bushfires to understand how the bushfires occurred, they wanted to understand the communications that was going on between all the different key people. And there was a terabyte of data. Now, back in those days, a terabyte of data was unheard of and it broke every tool that we had. So we had, you know, overnight phone calls to the tool vendors to try and get them to update what was going on because they had never contemplated a terabyte of data. Now, the difference now is I recently took a Microsoft Office 365 license, gave me six accounts, six user accounts, and a free terabyte of storage for each account for $100. So that's, that's the difference. In some of my research, there was a, a Chinese uh, cloud services company that provides 36 terabytes for free to each subscriber. So the data volume is just extraordinary. Yeah, it's massive. It just changes the nature of how much uh, people can do. Maybe we'll touch on a few early cases. In 2005, 2010, in one case, cyber criminals stole 90 million credit and debit card numbers from a large retail chain, and they made those available. Eventually, they were arrested, but that was the scale even back then. Peter Chapman, who some people might have heard of, uh, he was a, an English guy who murdered a woman in the United Kingdom after befriending her on Facebook. And this was in the early days of Facebook. So he managed to, as an early stage grooming, managed to contact her and convince her to meet him. Around 1990, John E. Robinson, who was already a known criminal, he adapted his criminal behavior to the internet when he became aware of the internet. And he has since been convicted of eight murders of women. Not all of them were he met through the internet. Some of them were met beforehand, but it enabled him to increase his level of offending. And even though he's been convicted of eight murders, it's suspected that he's committed more murders than that. In 2001, right, going back then, Enron declared bankruptcy. Although the, all of the paper documents were destroyed, the, sh the shredders were working overtime, investigators were able to piece together the fraudulent practices from the digital records. It was the transactions, but also the emails between 
various parties and consequently the convictions were obtained. You know, that's just a sample, a very small sample of the type of offences that are occurring. With the Australian Federal Police, you know, one of the things that we would do would be drug trafficking investigations. And we would routinely have 200 or more mobile phones, whether they're burners or smartphones or combinations, in a single case and trying to work out what the evidence was, who's talking with who and the like. They're very complex investigations and trying to work out what's going on. And it's all digital because the digital evidence maintains a record. And so when you think about the dynamic nature and the varied crime types that are involved, so where does this leave us going forward? Are you going to take a wager on making any predictions? Only it's going to get more interesting. Yeah, there you go, right? The transition from 4G to 5G, the you know the prevalence of use um, is like you walk through at the beginning, getting in your Uber. I felt I should clarify it was an autonomous Uber, right? And then all the way throughout your day, the timestamps and the data harvested and collected, it's just going to get more complex. So what do you think? So it is going to be more complex. And there are a couple of things in this. One is a personal decision. When I finished at the Australian Federal Police, I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? Because in between times, I had gone on to manage all of forensic science within Australian Federal Police. I did that for about five years or so. And it was interesting. But I thought, no, I've, I'm done with that. I've had enough. But the part where I had the most fun, what was most interesting was the digital side of it. Because it changes. It changes every day. And so much of it is unpredictable. So, for example, in 2009, 4G was launched. And even though what people could see was it was faster and better services and all that type of thing, there are a lot of unanticipated changes. So it facilitated the growth in social media. Now, for example, in 2009, there were 197 million users of Facebook. A decade later, there was 2.375 billion users. And nobody anticipated that change. It just kind of happened. The, the growth in streaming services, it's been a great change, in part facilitated by 4G. One of the things that's occurring now is the proliferation of Internet of Things devices. And at the moment, there's 20, about 25 billion devices, and that's expected to grow to about 75 billion in the next five years. And there are no doubt researchers working on IoT devices that we can't even imagine. So all I can say is this field is exciting because you really don't know what's coming and you're going to have to figure out the problem when it comes. We read and we anticipate as much as we can. Just another example, most communications now are via apps. They're not via phone to phone or text message. It's via apps. For example, the most popular communications app at the moment is WhatsApp. There's 1.6 billion accounts on WhatsApp and there are many others around as well some we don't see in the united states so much you know for example wechat even though it's here it's very prevalent in in china there are many other apps that are around and each app will store and use this data differently to every other so assumptions that you make with one app or the behaviors of the data and the storage of data in one app can be completely different to that of another app and it can change overnight if they decide to do an update yeah when you think about a criminal incident, uh, a criminal involved. Again, it's just not what's on the phone nowadays. It's what's on their phone, their app, what their timestamps are, with their credit card use, these other things. And it's, again, getting back to that data story. So stitching together all of those pieces of information to reconstruct 
a crime scene, if you will, a criminal event. A couple of things we can say about 5G that we think is going to happen. Autonomous vehicles are more likely to become a reality. Autonomous vehicles will be able to communicate directly with each other rather than have to go through a hub. 5G will facilitate that and that will make them safer. Telemedicine, it will advance fairly quickly because vital signs of an individual can be transmitted instantly to a doctor and the doctor will have systems that can alert and respond quickly, you know, anticipating a cardiac event or something like that. Sure. Sensors and... Exactly. And augmented reality and virtual reality will provide greater immersive experiences. So these are some of the things that we're pretty sure will come with 5G. Others, nobody's got a clue. That was a great discussion. And uh, on that note, I'd like to thank our guest today, Mr. Paul Reedy, sitting down with Just Science to discuss the emerging issues and the evolution of digital evidence. Thank you, Paul. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. My pleasure. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the field of forensics, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Mike Planney, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science interviews Nicholas Hughes, an assistant public defender with the Harris County Public Defender's Office, about the need for full specification for digital forensic tool validation. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.